a number of years ago, uh, the, a group called the Barna Group did some extensive research in the United States, and the primary question that they were seeking to answer was, how do those outside Christianity perceive those inside it? And, and more specifically, they were interested in the response from the emerging generation, the millennials, those born in the 80s and the 90s. And the results of that study were gathered, analyzed, and put together in a book, tellingly entitled, Unchristian. And the conclusions and the statements that they summarized about how millennials uh, perceived uh, uh, Christians were very telling. Uh, we're not going to spend too much time, but I think it's helpful just to run through what those summary findings were. And most of these sh uh, shouldn't be surprising to many of us. But what millennials outside the church said about Christians were these six things. First of all, they said Christians were hypocritical. They say one thing, but they live something entirely different. Secondly, they're judgmental. They're proud and quick to find fault in other people. Third, Christians are anti-homosexual. They show contempt for gays and lesbians. Number four, Christians are outdated. They're boring, unintelligent, old-fashioned, and out of touch with reality. Number five, Christians are too political, right? They're primarily motivated by a political agenda and they promote right-wing politics. And finally, Christians are insincere, right? They're only concerned with converting other people. Sign me up, right? I mean, none of us want to be a part of this. If this described a community, right, this sounds awful, None of us want to sign up and be a part of this kind of community. And I know a lot of us uh, struggle with openly sharing our faith with friends and coworkers, but in general, I don't think it's because we're necessarily ashamed of Jesus. Rather, we simply don't want to be associated with everything that goes along with the label Christian. So on a regular basis, when I'm talking to somebody and they ask me what I do for a living... I respond, well, um, I'm a pastor. And they're always like, really? You seem so nice. Right? You seem like normal, right? And what they're saying is, huh, I, I have an idea of Christians or Christianity, and you're starting to really challenge that. You break the stereotype of that. And so there are these rumors going around about Christians and Christianity. And we're not here to talk about whether these rumors are justified or not. That's a whole different conversation. But here is what I simply want to ask today. If those are the rumors that are being spread about Christianity as a whole, what are the rumors that are being spread about grace? And when people in our city hear about us as a faith community, what are they hearing? And when they talk about us, what are they saying? If we could eavesdrop on, on their conversations that are happening about Grace Ann Arbor, what are the rumors? What are people saying about our church? And just to clarify, when I say Grace Ann Arbor and when I say church, I am not talking about our services, our programs, or events, right? We're not saying, uh, what are they saying about the music or, or what goes on here? That's not the point, but what are they saying about us? 
Because we often say, right, church is not a building or a place or an event. The church is a people. So what are the, you are Grace Ann Arbor. You are the church. And so when we're about out and about in the city, going to school, working our jobs, hanging out with our friends, we are going as members of this local body of believers. And as people are encountering us and entering into relationship with us, as as they work with us and live with us, what are they saying about us? What are the rumors that are going around about Grace Ann Arbor? And we ask that question fully recognizing and aware that we can control people's perceptions of us and, and we don't even want to try, right? That's not what this is about. It's not like we're trying to maintain a certain image and I'm up here saying, hey guys, you know, don't make us look bad. And that's not the point of this. But we're simply saying, what rumors would we hope to be spread about grace? And more specifically, what would we love for our city to say about us as a people? So the next three weeks, I want to share how we want our core values to shape uh, us in becoming the kinds of people that God calls us to be. And so one of the first uh, uh, values that, that we have here at Grace is that of worship, right? Pursuing intimacy with God, making our hearts, orienting it toward, vertically towards our relationship with him. And so I would translate this, this in the context of this question that the first rumor that we hope is true about Grace Ann Arbor is this, that when people talk about us as a people, that they would say their love for Jesus is central to every part of their lives. As the people of Ann Arbor, as they observe us, as they get to know us, as they talk with us, as they watch how we live, as they see what we do, as they hear what we say, that it would become apparent over a period of time that their love for Jesus is central to every part of their lives, not just on Sunday mornings, but every part of their life. So we want to be known as a community of people that are committed to pursuing intimacy with God as a way of life. And the hope would be that every single one of us here, wherever you're at in the journey, whether you've been a a follower of Christ all your life or this whole Christianity thing is still new to you, that this would become more and more true of you, that you would learn to pursue intimacy with God as a way of life. And so today we're going to look and read parts of the Sermon on the Mount, specifically the passage that talks through the, uh, that, that describes the Lord's Prayer. And we want to ask ourselves as we read this passage, how does this passage inform us in our journey in that relationship with God that we have? And just a little context, because we're going to be jumping into Matthew chapter 6 about halfway through the sermon. Up till this point, Jesus has been issuing a call to social justice. He has been talking about, here is how we should care for the poor. Here is how we should treat our enemies. Here is the posture of love compassion, justice, mercy, and generosity that we should be known for. And then, starting in verse 5 of chapter 6, he, he breaks in by, say, by starting with the word, and. And when you pray. Now, meaning, when he, when he says, and, when you say, and, right, uh, he, he's not changing the subject now. Rather, he is taking it further. He is going deeper. And so what he's going to be talking about now is not disconnected from talking about justice and love and compassion. And then he says, and when you pray, they're connected. 
Do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So Jesus is giving us significant insight into what it looks like to become the kind of people that God calls us to be and the world needs us to be, right? And he says, yes, again, it is connected to giving and serving and justice and compassion, but it is very much connected to what this this portion where he talks about prayer, right? And basically, Jesus is saying this, your prayer life is going to significantly shape your ability to live out the love of God to the world around you. Your prayer life is going to shape in you becoming the kind of people that this world needs. And the first thing that Jesus is teaching us about prayer in this passage is he's saying this, look, I don't want you to only pray when other people are around you. But if your love for me is going to be genuine and real and authentic and growing, you're going to have to learn to pray when you're all by yourself. If the only time that you are praying is in public, not necessarily in the street corners, because normal people don't do that, but in this setting, if the only time that you praise God is when there's a band and and a screen in front of you, if the only time that you're praying for somebody else is in your community group, and the only time you pray is when you are with other people, he says, then you are a hypocrite. You are doing something in front of others that you don't do by yourself. In other words, you are maintaining, maintaining an image that you are doing better than you actually are. And that's how he defines hypocrisy. And notice, this is very different than what comes to mind when you hear the, the phrase, well, Christians are hypocrites, right? Because we, th- we think of all the ways that hypocrisy gets played out in the public square. Uh, but Jesus says here, look, here's the first way to know whether you are a hypocrite. And, and he basically asks us to examine ourselves and says, do you spend time with God on your own? Do you go into your closet and pray to your father when you're on your own, or does it all just happen in public? Of course, Jesus isn't saying you shouldn't pray in front of others. He's not saying you shouldn't worship together in public. He's just saying that if the only time that you pray is when other people are around, then you're missing the point. So the true test, the way to see whether your relationship with him is growing is to examine what happens when nobody else is around. When, when, another way to ask this question is, is this. When you're by yourself and you have nothing else you have to think about, what do you think about? Is your mind and your thoughts and your affections ever drawn to God and, and your relationship with Christ? Or are they always on to something else? Is your faith real and not just something that you do as a public show? For everybody else, but is it rooted and grounded in a relationship with me? Jesus goes on in his sermon, and he says this, and when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And so we're not going to spend a lot of time looking at the entire Lord's Prayer, but I do want us to zoom in on one, uh, a few aspects of this prayer. But one particular word that I want to zoom in on is this, this antiquated and strange word, hallowed. Right? It's a word that nobody ever uses except if you're praying this, the Lord's Prayer. Now here's what's interesting. The NIV translation of the Bible has done a pretty good job of using contemporary vernacular English, but it still uses the word hallowed. Why? Because there is no other English word that conveys the richness of what it means. Right? And basically, if you unpack it, it means that uh, it means you are setting apart something as ultimate or supreme value in your life. And so this is praying God that the name of God would be hallowed in my life as the most, as the biggest, as the best, as the most precious thing in my life. And, and here's the interesting thing. Most of us know how to hallow something. Right? We all have something in our lives that we Hallow. It's the biggest thing. It's the most important thing. It's of supreme value to us more than anything else. I could think of family. I could think of career. I could think of money or looks or possessions. Maybe academic achievements and grades. Maybe the acceptance of your peers or the admiration of your colleagues. I mean, there are so many things that we hallow in our life. But Jesus is saying, if you are a follower of Jesus, you will wrestle, you will fight, and you will struggle every single day to make God hallowed in your life. That he would be set apart as the best and the biggest, the one person that has the most value and is supreme in your life more than anything else. And this is what Jesus is getting at when he, when he prays us, hallowed be your name. If you're gonna be the kind of people that God is calling you and the world needs to be, needs us to be, we must ask ourselves if we are hallowing God's name, right? Have I set Christ apart in my life as the most precious, the most wonderful and most glorious object of my affection? If so, and when you're alone, then of course, your thoughts and affections are drawn towards Christ. It's not out of discipline or duty, but simply because he is the most supreme thing in your life. Another thing I want us to notice about the Lord's Prayer that's really interesting is the word hallowed comes for before this other phrase that I often pray a lot, give us, right? Meaning that the priority in prayer is not, hey God, here's all the things that I want you to do for me today. Right, but that's how I often begin my prayers. But to, to pray, hallowed be your name, before you pray, give us your day means, look, that we don't go to God so that he will give us what we want. We go to God because he is what we really want. We, he is the desire of our hearts. He is the end. He is not just the means to an end. He is the end. So if he is hallowed in my life, if I've made him great and supreme and the most in my life, then we go to him because we just want him. 
Now, if you still haven't figured out what's hallowed in your life, uh, here's a good way to, to tell what is hallowed in your life. What is it that drives you to your knees? Here's what I mean. If you've made your family the most and the best and the ultimate thing in your life, then when your family is in trouble, that will drive you to your knees and you will go to God. If your finances are hallowed in your life, then when you're in financial trouble, then you will go to God so he can fix this part of your life, right? And so Jesus is saying, look, don't go to God only when the the really important matters to you are at stake, but rather as you grow and mature, you will find yourself going to God not to get something out of him, but you will go to him just simply for him. And so the question is, what is it that drives you to your knees? What is it that forces you to pray and remember your dependence on God and that really helps to reveal what's most important to you? Hallowed be your name. I, also, I want to focus on one other part of this Lord's Prayer. He, he, again, he does start off with our Father, and he is a good Father, uh, but uh, he's not just a, a good Father We are to hallow his name, and it says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That means that he is also, God is somebody who has a kingdom, meaning he is also a king. He is a good father, yes, but he's also your king. And and how do you approach a king? In Jesus' days, when kings were a lot more prevalent, you entered a king's courtroom by coming and you would kneel before his throne and you would lay down your weapon as a symbol of your submission to his authority and your total surrender to him. And so the only way to approach a king is on his terms, not on your terms. This is a big problem for me. Because I like to approach God on my terms, right? God, here is where and when uh, I'll be, uh, where, and hopefully you'll be able to join me there. And God says, no, you have taken the place on the throne that I belong to, right? That is not the way this works. We come to God on his terms. And you know what that means for us? It means that sometimes God is going to contradict me. He is going to say things that I wish he didn't say. He is going to ask me to do things that I would rather not do. He is going to uh, point out areas of my life, my thinking, my attitude, my lifestyle, that he asks me to change, but I don't want to. And let let me say this as clearly as possible Unless you have a God that contradicts you, you have a fake God. Your God is nothing but a fairy tale God made in your very own image. If somehow you and God are always on the same page, if He's always cool with whatever you're doing and however you're living, if there's if there's never any tension in your relationship and everything always lines up between you and God, let me just say, you have a fake God. That is not the God of the Bible, but it is the God made in your own image. Now, 
uh, here's where we're all at after all this, right? We're, we're here, and at this point, most of us are feeling really convicted or, or really guilty, including myself, because we don't pray uh, that much. And when we do pray, we don't pray that well. And every single one of us here feels like, man, you know, I don't hallow God in my life like I should. My prayer life is not where it should be. So I want to say something that I think we need to hear over and over and over and over again. And that's this. On the cross, Jesus took all of your shortcomings, all of your failures, all of your rebellion, and he took them as a burden upon himself, and he endured the shame of the cross, the suffering, the rejection, the the humiliation, and ultimately the death that we deserve because of our prayerlessness. And in exchange, he gave us his perfect record and a right standing with God. And that means for all the seasons that we've been prayerless, for all the times that we haven't hallowed God in in our lives, that means that in Christ, that means that God is not mad at you. He is not angry at you. You are forgiven. And so many of us, including myself, hear a sermon like this about how we should be praying, and we end up being loaded with guilt and conviction and resolution, and we start thinking, man, you know, right after this, this service, I'm gonna, tomorrow I'm going to start praying. I don't want to feel guilty anymore, and so I know I could do this. I want to hello God first in my life. You are totally missing the entire point of the gospel. Your resolutions, your doing better or trying harder is not the answer. Jesus came to live that life for you. He had a perfect relationship with God the Father for you. And now he has given that perfect life as a free gift of salvation to us. Earlier this morning, I was talking to somebody who, this happens every New Year's, who this is their first time at church in a really, really long time. Right? I went to church when I was little, but man, I can't even remember the last time uh, I've been to church and I've got some making up to do. I, I mean, I've got a lot of ground to cover. It's been like decades. Well, in Christ, that ground has already been covered. And so our motivation for pursuing intimacy with God is not shame and guilt and duty and obligation, but rather in Jesus Christ, our motivation for pursuing intimacy with God is now gratitude and love and joy and delight and worship. And so that's how we are gonna respond this morning. Would you stand And let's join together. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes as we prepare to respond to the good news of Jesus? And so, God, it is our prayer that it may be said of us that our love for Jesus is so central to every part of our lives that there is not one aspect that has not been handed over to you. And we rejoice in the fact that because of Jesus Christ, we have the freedom. We get to enjoy the presence of the Father everywhere we go. That we don't have to, we're we're never turned away because of our guilt. But instead, we could run into your arms. So God, we take pleasure in your delight in us. 
as you pour out your wrath upon your son on the cross and you invite us into this eternal life we rest on the promise of the good news. And though it will cost us to follow you, to set aside time and our comfort to make you hallowed in our lives, we know it costs us nothing to be able to be reconciled with the Father, to speak to him, and to be in a right standing with him because of Jesus Christ. And so God, today, we want to declare, may you be the king of our lives again. May you be the king of our hearts. Would you take the throne in our lives that we have for too long sat upon as we come bowing and kneeling before you in total surrender and total submission to your kingship and your authority in our lives. It's in Christ's name we pray.